Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome, everybody, back to J3 University Podcast. With me today is, of course, co-host Luke Miller. Luke, how are you doing, buddy? Good, man. Ready to rock today. Right on. And also with us is Dr. Jordan Shallow, chiropractor and performance coach, founder of Prescript, and coach for Elite FTS. Jordan, how are you doing, man? It's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to this. Yeah, the, the topic we wanted to have you on, which is really your specialty, is, of course, <clears throat> just uh, the assessment and session pre- uh, preparation, string into program setup for specifically bodybuilders. So before we even touch the basics of programming, like how much volume do you do or how many sets should you do? Like, how do you move? Are you moving appropriately to even get into these positions to do these functions? And even if you are in these positions to execute a squat or a hack squat, um, and maybe it looks right, are you even having the proper neural patterns to activate the muscles that you want to? And, and this has been an issue that I run into almost everyone that I, I coach is someone has some type of level of dysfunction or mobility issue. And uh, I, I can see them look right, but then there's all these, uh, you know, asymmetries present in bodybuilders. I've had them myself. It's like, gosh, I'm trying as hard as I can. I'll, I'll do, um, you know, unilateral movements and everything looks right, but I'm still like not having this equal growth in, in tissue. And there has to be something more. And maybe it's neurological, maybe it's from injuries. And so that's what we want the expert here for to dive into and just kind of answer some of this, this, this stuff for us. So I think like a great starting point would be getting to, um, you know, just presenting your mobility, stability, strength model, trying to set up those definitions. And before we get into, you know, what, what do we actually do once we're seeing these problems and before moving into program design for individuals? Yeah, so like mobility, stability, strength is like a model. Uh, I don't know if model is the right word. It's kind of like a prerequisite system. Um, so uh, listening, and this is where things get a little bit contentious, like understanding stability as a separate adaptation, I think is something that often gets lost in the quantitative weeds of, of strength training and sports performance and things like that. And fundamentally, it's when people don't have a working understanding of how the central nervous system works. We like to reference the central nervous system just haphazardly. And we just like kind of close our eyes because we can map like a bicep origin insertion. We can toss out like a coracoid process here and there. We can sound smart, but unless you want to really dive into like mapping the central nervous system, uh, a lot of people have an issue with that model because of they don't understand stability as a separate adaptation in the body. Uh, So I think range of motion and mobility, you know, understanding the difference between mobility and flexibility, I think is important understanding that flexibility is passive mobility is active right and as bodybuilders as i'm assuming that's the audience that we're going to be speaking to like you know the principle of active range is something that often comes up in bodybuilding circles like understanding when to train within or without your active range and i think to have that conversation devoid of the conversation of like you know internal versus external stability structural versus functional stability i think is kind of a moot point right so like should you go outside of your active range when you squat Probably not. Could you go outside your active range with a leg press? Yeah, probably. What's the difference between those two exercises? Well, one is externally stabilized by the leg press that you're sitting in. One is externally unstable because it's just you and a barbell and gravity, right? So uh, mobility, I think, is something that 
when we look at it in bodybuilding terms, we often, we denote it as our active range of motion, right? This is kind of born out of that RTS, Tom Purvis, mm -hmm. real kind of strength curve resistance profile, which I think has its merits. Uh, but I would say that's, that's very much in part a, a mechanical model and not necessarily a biomechanical model. Um, so understanding range of motion being, or mobility as being your active range of motion. And then the active range of motion will advance you into position, relative joint positions that become structurally unstable. Like if I were trying to dislocate Luke's shoulder, the first thing I would do is put his arm over his head, right? Because now the articulating surface of the humerus and the glenoid has less of a structural stability and now in turn is relying more on his functional stability, right? So stability can subdivide through internal and external, which is the example of the leg press and the squat. And stability can then from the internal break up into structure and function which would be, you know, bones on bones, more inert passive structures. Uh, and then we have like our more active structure, their active constraints in this example with the overhead position, the rotator cuff probably being the primary. And to a certain degree, like the bicep plays a role in stabilizing the shoulder. The lat plays a role in stabilizing the shoulder, depending on the force vector, the tricep and the deltoid can play a role in stabilizing the shoulder. So I think when we get into stability, it's understanding that stability now becomes our, our ability to resist force right? We, we, we conflate this with strength a lot of times in the way that we practice rehab, rehab, warm-up, activation, priming, insert, whatever bullshit term you want. And we, we think that they're the two in the same, right? So we think that, you know, it comes down to the language. How many times as a clinician, I've heard people come in saying that I have a weak rotator cuff. I have a weak core. I have weak glutes. And it's like, but sure, does it, but does it matter? Like, does it matter that your glute need is weak? Like, does it matter that you can't do fucking clamshells with a band around your ankle? Like, probably not because those muscles aren't oriented in a way where they need to necessarily exert force, right? That's not how they function. Like when you walk down the street, you're not fucking kicking your legs off to the side, just abducting into infinite space. It's like, oh, fuck is Why do we do that? And we think that's going to work. Um, so adding resistance to build strength rather than scaling center of mass and base support to build stability is something where I think a lot of people miss the boat in conventional models. So they'll go to something like a, um, like a, like a clamshell, like a rotator cuff, external rotation, isolation exercise, which isn't to say that those remedial exercises of strength, training a muscle through its action from insertion to origin don't have its place, but long-term, if we need to be specific and with bodybuilders, specificity should be our aim a lot of times bodybuilders just chase arbitrary novelty right they chase novelty like i don't know we're gonna we're gonna rest pause drop super set and it's like what the fuck is like you just throwing shit to see if like i maybe something new will come out of this i don't know i love to do it with occlusion bands it's like, for fuck's sake and they've applied this like throw shit at a wall and see what sticks to their their rehab rehab priming whatever and they get left like they're one track minded in training a muscle's function. They go, well, if my bicep is weak, I train it from insertion to origin, going through some level of elbow flexion, supination and shoulder flexion. I might do that against resistance and it gets stronger. I know my biceps are stronger when I train that way. So my rotator cuff needs to get stronger. So they move it from insertion to origin, right? Depending on which particular part of the rotator cuff they're attempting to isolate. But when we look at like shoulders, hips, spines, and in a deeper conversation, ribcage and pelvis, it's not about isolation. It's about integration, right? So it's not about training the muscles action in isolation by adding resistance to build strength. 
So we're training a muscle's function in integration to build stability, right? And that's where the model, so that, that's the cornerstone of the model is that's really where the nervous system is going to derive that specific adaptation. And if you wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that, you would look at uh, muscle spindle pathways, um, dorsal spinal thalamic tracts, and ultimately the cerebellum is where anything under the sphere of athleticism is going to really reside in primarily in the brain. Um, but for all intents and purposes, stability is our ability to resist force and to understand that and how much we gradate that stimulus. It ultimately comes down to center of mass and base of support, right? If I stand on two legs, I have a wider base support and my center of mass is in between that. If I stand on one, there goes my base support. And now my center of mass is deviating and I can deviate it further with the combined center of mass and me and a dumbbell. My body's going to immediately attempt to self-organize into structure. I'm going to lean in a way so that my center of mass goes right over my midfoot of my stance leg, right? But how is it that I can keep it in function, right? So if I can stand on one leg and hinge, for example, then I can do that with some level of proficiency. It's like, okay, that tells me that the path of least resistance that my body is taking when I'm in a hinge position on both legs is through my function, not through my structure. We see this a lot with people with like SI joint issues. Bodybuilders struggle with like, you know, doing something as simple as like a pendulum row. Like because the center of mass is purposely deviated anterior to your base of support, if you don't have the trunk stability, if you're stuck in too much extension, I know a lot of bodybuilders that can't do something as simple as a barbell row or pendulum row because it starts to hurt their back. And if you put them on one leg and put them in that position, they don't have a hope or a prayer of actually being able to risk, resist that force internally in their function. In this case, piriformis, glute meat, lateral hip structure or lateral hip function. So it's like, well, if you can't do it on one leg, what chance do you think you have doing it on two legs? Because when you have both legs, now you're closing that circuit into a structurally stable position, that structure being your SI joints, your facet joints of your lower back, your, your um, the labrum of your femoral acetabular joint. So that's really where I think the model sort of lives and dies. So you have to have the adequate range of motion to get into unstable positions. You have to, when accessible to these unstable structural positions, elicit an effective and scalable stimulus of instability by either deviating center of mass or limiting base support. Then from there, you license those joint positions to express force, which is strength, right? So we want to resist force before we can express force. So a lot of times we put the cart before the horse and when our strength outruns our stability, that's when we start running into issues. Can we walk through one of those gradations of stability, like, and how we're moving someone through that for them to kind of understand that we're applying this within the sphere of which we're outputting and we're not doing this, like, not only like BOSU ball bullshit, but like what it looks like to actually deviate from center of mass and what those gradations look like within stability training. Yeah. Yeah. So like, understanding like I, I think the lower body is probably the easiest so going from you know I, a, I would for a squat let's start with a squat I feel like this is probably the most common plight for most bodybuilders especially watching bodybuilders squat on smith machines my whole life makes me want to just eat a bullet um, so <laughs> starting with our stationary no it's okay man you have the you have the wheels to be indemnified from literally any conversation <laughs> When you got legs like you, you could just basically tell schmucks like me to go fuck myself. Um, but when you think about something like a stationary lunge, like, okay, how does, like the squat is an expression of function. It is not in itself functional, right? So if you can, if you can have the, if you can have the base units of function and can prize them together, you can, you can make a really good long lasting sustainable squat. And the problem with, 
bodybuilders and powerlifters and your average gym goers is that there's so many facets to athleticism that can allow you to compensate without, because this is one of the questions that you get met with. Well, I can, I can't stand on one leg, but I can squat 405 in wraps and a tapered belt. Like that's tremendous. I'm very happy for you. Um, but one of the things is like peripheral stability is not the only way we create an internal motion caption of, or capture of where, how, where and how our body moves in space, right? Like bodybuilders love training in front of mirrors. You take a bodybuilder out off the Smith machine, out of a mirror, put a barbell on his back and put him in a powerlifting gym, staring at a bunch of fat guys with beards. They have no fucking idea how to squat because there's, they never knew how to squat because they knew how to fix their squat. And so, I mean, to understand this progression and without going too far afield into the nervous system, it's like, I need to preface this with, yes, stability is, I think, our most important peripheral input into our cerebellum. So when it comes to athleticism, you know, Tiger Woods doesn't have, like, has a, quite an atypical golf swing, but there are other inputs outside of what we consider like the spinocerebellum, which would be stability, deep pressure, light touch, heat, all these inputs that come from our body into our brain. Like your eyes, your eyes and your inner ear apparatus make up what's called your vestibulocerebellum. And then you have like your motor pattern centered in your brain called your cerebrocerebellum. So when we're talking in bodybuilding and gym terms, we're really only talking about inputs that get relayed through the spinocerebellum. The spinocerebellum breaks down into this drop menu of a bunch of different stimuli that have a bunch of different inputs into um, a bunch of different nerve endings that fire up into the brain. And we have this collective picture that gets made for us from these peripheral inputs through the spinal cerebellum. So that's kind of a disclaimer, a little bit of an aside before I go through this unilateral progression and people go, well, I can't do any of that and blah, 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 405 squat. Um, so I would start off someone with, okay, let's see how it is that you organize your hips and your, 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 your ilium and your rib cage and your femurs in a stationary lunge. Think we can manage that. Like, let me see. And everybody was going to do the same thing. They're going to overextend. They're going to externally rotate the extended hip. And they're going to have, because what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to create a broad base of support, right? Like, they're not going to want to go into the functional distribution or the functional relationship of extension and internal rotation of that back hip. They're just, they're like a blind guy with a white cane. They're just trying to map their environment because they have no internal stability. So they're trying to use other inputs outside of their proprioception in order to create this, you know, polished image to come up into the cerebellum with the other two inputs, vestibulo and cerebro. So if I look at that, I go, well, you don't have enough hip extension and internal rotation. How can you expect to squat if you don't have enough internal rotation in your hip? Right. So that right there, it's like, well, I'm not going to squat you because I know that we don't have the functional stability or capacity to do that. And you're going to be loading into your structure. You're going to be grinding the shit out of your SI, uh, out of your femoral acetabular joint, right? Like, um, I mean, I hate to pick on him, but like Roman Fritz just had a hip replacement. Roman's an animal guy. He's been part of animal for however many years. But, you know, the guy just did a bunch of crazy ass squats forever. And I don't want to pick on him because there's a bunch of guys out there. But it's like if we paid attention to these precursors, if we paid attention to these performance indicators, we could stop this inevitable dysfunction from manifesting itself because that's a clear that's look you're loading into structure you're not loading into function you're getting the stability from the bones from the from the labrum of the hip from the si joint from the intervertebral disc you're not getting it from your adductor stabilizing your pelvis your glute med stabilizing your lateral hips your core stabilizing your pelvis so stationary lunge would be where i'd start can you stationary lunge and get something that resembles you know hip and knee flexion 
go from there into walking lunge. Can you now perturbate this scenario and introduce a, a deviation of center of mass and base support? Right, so now we're going through stance phase and swing phase. Now we're actually testing the lateral stability while we're in stance phase, which is roughly like 55, 60% of the entire gait cycle. So it's like you need to start to calibrate for your sort of dynamic stability before we start standing still and calling on our structural stability. We need to know that we're firing on all cylinders. So basically stationary lunge, walking lunge. You could throw in something like a Bulgarian split squat or sprinter's pose something that allows you to go through terminal knee extension and organize your ankle, knee, and pelvis in a straight line. Then it would be getting into hinge patterns like single leg RDL and then ultimately hip airplane depending on your squat depth. So every single one of those progressions is adding either a limitation of base support and or a deviation of center of mass. So that would be, and then from there, you would just pair your squat patterns um, accordingly, right? So if someone can't stationary lunge, it's like, or if someone's at stationary lunge, like, all right, let's try walking and they start falling all over the place. Like, okay, we're gonna do like a counterbalance spot to start. Cause it's gonna be self-limiting in the amount of load. We're gonna better help organize the rib cage and the pelvis just given the constraints of the loading parameter of the exercise. I, we're gonna keep you more structurally stable in the way you squat, keeping your rib cage over your pelvis with the weight out in front of you because you haven't earned the right functionally to be able to resist that force. Walking lunge gets better. All right, let's move the weight in a little bit. Let's try and sit into those hips. Now we know the hips are a little bit more stable. So we go from counterbalance to goblet, to front, to high, to low, and so on, right? So that's kind of how those two progressions sort of superimpose over one another. And that model, again, just because someone, like I know plenty of guys who break world records. Like I'm sure Vlad Alzahov can't fucking stand on one leg. Vlad Alzahov can't see his feet. But he also squats like 1,100 pounds. So does it matter? Not really. But if Vlad Alzheimer like jumped out of his truck, he's probably more likely to herniate the disc in his back or some shit like that because he doesn't have the functional capacity. He has a large deviation of his center of mass because he's a big dude. But like athleticism is more than just a peripheral spinocerebellar input. And that's like the double back to the disclaimer from the beginning. It's like we can, we can fill the holes and we can bridge the gaps in our mapping issues with the other two inputs that make up and comprise the cerebellum. And that's like our eyes are in our ear, our balance points and our, our, um, our cerebral cortex. But if we're talking purely about the neural sharpening of uh, the spinocerebellar inputs, stability does become the most important because it gets transmitted the quickest through the body. So if we look at something like slow pain, that's a part of the spinocerebellar tract, that gets relayed at like a three to well, pain in general goes three to 30 meters per second. Proprioception, that gets transmitted through these things called A-alpha fibers, and that goes 120 meters per second. So there's an evolutionary reason that proprioception is the quickest thing to get to our brain. Our body wants to know where we are at all times, and that's that internal motion capture. So when dealing with maybe like less athletic populations and people who are just worried about the gym, it's like, can we try to have a modicum of athleticism involved in your training at all? Or do you want to just go do your 405 Smith machine squats in the mirror and totally dumb and deaf and mute your peripheral inputs? Yeah, I think there's some good points to definitely bring out of that because you have this conversation where people are going to listen to this and definitely say like, well, I have my 405 squat. I must be functionally perfect and stable, right? And and I've I've been in there, like with especially my my pressing movements, like, um, and I powerlifted. I you know set some big numbers of pressing, and e even still, like, but what's 
why is this important to everyone else? It's because like, well, for me, like, hey, you start getting like niggles and injuries and connective tissue damage occurring. It's like, well, why is that happening? Oh, I must, maybe I'm just bench pressing too much. I have to lay off. And then you start working around injuries and you start bringing in new movements. But why did this happen even to begin with? <clears throat> and so like some of the guys that I've worked with in, in rehab and doing like functional movement systems and people that are familiar with these other, other programs, um, you know, you, you become like, and you find these weaknesses within muscles, right? And so, it's, oh, well, your serratus is weak, your rotator cuff is weak, et cetera, et cetera. Your structures are compensating, muscles are compensating. So you can have the perfect bench press still. You don't know any different, but you're overloading these other tissues. Um, but you just the root issue here is that you gave me, the guy, he gave me a, a kettlebell to hold in one arm in a bench press position. And I was fucking shaking and quivering. And it's like, holy shit, like I have a 15 pound kettlebell. I can't control the damn thing. But if you put 300, 400 pounds in my hands in a bench press, hell yeah, I could smash that smash on that. And so it's like, well, what the hell's going on here? If I can do that, it's like, yeah, because you, you lack the stability and the support, supporting musculature around it. So what is going to lead into that is at some point down the road, you're going to get injured. It's, it's, a, it's setting yourself up for that. So even if you have like this perfect squat now, or perfect bench press now, it's like, hey, I don't have these problems that Jordan's talking about. You might actually still do, and you're just leading down the road to this issue. Or even then, you're not getting the most out of your current training, right? And, and that's even a potential as well. So with, with that being said, like say this, this you know, world record powerlifter that has this phenomenal squat that also has this instability issue, put on one leg, he falls down or, you know, goes to pick up a box on one leg and, you know, tears a hamstring off or something happens like this. Uh, usually we're getting injured outside of the gym. Why? Because we don't, we're not, you know, stable with, within a lot of these movements you're talking about. Um, what do you see? Because I want to say like people who investigate like, hey, you're going to get a benefit out of this. Um, what, what have you seen change-wise with, with addressing stability in people that say like, hey, I don't need you, Jordan. I don't need all this stability training. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, it's people's own prerogative. Look, some people are too weak to get hurt. Like, let's just, let's just throw that Fair out. Enough. Like, some people are too weak of mind. Like, it takes a lot. Like, I've torn some muscles, and it's like, your body's like, yo, and you're like, shut the fuck up. We're doing this. Like, YOLO, ride or die. It's like, and some people, and it's always the, it's always the 405 and raps guy who's like, yeah, you fucking nerds. Like, all right, man, whatever. Then don't do it. I don't give a shit. It's 405 forever. Like, I, I, I don't have the time for this. Um, what I would say is one thing that I think is pretty eye-opening is kind of what you, um, what you alluded to. And that's something that we call biphasic response. Right. So biphasic response is like if you can think of like conventionally how like vaccines work, where and like I don't want to get into any nonsense about that shit, but like it, like polio is not a thing anymore. I'm just saying. But if you think about like a vaccine, like an attenuated version of a virus, your body's performance after getting in a vaccine administered is probably going to go down because your immune system is like, yeah, the fuck's going on here? Like, let's deal with this nonsense. But so this is like biphasic. So two by one, two and then phases like phasic phases the first phase of like post like inoculation is like well your body's like immune system performance is going to kind of go down because it's got to deal with this new thing you're like oh fuck okay and then it's gonna be like all right we kind of got it under control then what happens the second phase is we so we've gone from baseline went down and then we've reached some sort of lull or or valley of of function and then all of a sudden your body goes okay like we use the immunoglobin system and then we get IgEs and IgM and mast cells, and all this shit, mesonophils. And then we're like, oh, okay, we're good. So if we see this fucking thing again, we're sweet. 
that's kind of what happens when we introduce instability and mobility training specific to, you know, people's deficiencies in particular ranges of motion and then the subsequent instabilities that follow. It's like, I'm going to give many a guy who benches 400 pounds a 15 pound kettlebell and be like, Hey, I want you to like, you know, do what mobility crap you got to do to get the overhead position before you train, put a kettlebell over your head, unstable load, unstable position, do down, give me 10, 12 reps, maybe do some, I don't know, some serratus drills and T-spine rotation stuff and then go bench. What often happens is people do that and then like, oh man, I only got what 315 for six. I usually get 315 for 10. Like, you're telling me that a 15 pound kettlebell took like four reps off your 315? It's like, that's a huge, like, I thought it was nothing, man. Like, I thought this was like, this was some pussy shit. It's like, but 15 pounds took fucking 40 pounds off your bench press. And that's the initial part of the biphasic response. Like, you have, you guys have dogs? Yes. Yeah. Right. So I have a German Shepherd, and the only way I, I can take that, I can take Axel to the park, and I can throw that tennis ball until my arm falls off. Never tired. I'll die before that dog gets tired. But if I like start hard, hiding food around the house and like making them think and like do a bunch of drills with them, then he gets tired. This peripheral athleticism that we're trying to evoke, this modicum of athleticism, this reactivity, the sharpening of like this peripheral spinal cerebellar pathway. This makes you actually think like this thing, this makes you act and react. Right. And then that process, if that's making you tired and it's taking 40 pounds, well, it's like, look, just do this for a few weeks until the 15 pound kettlebell moves up to like a 20 pound kettlebell and the six reps on the kettlebell bottom under press goes to like a 10 reps or whatever. Then all of a sudden we're going to reach the ascension on this biphasic response. And in this ascension, we're going to make the adaptations and we're no longer going to be taps we can kind of do this uh we can do this not not mindlessly that's the wrong, wrong way to look at it but we can do this a little bit more uh, autonomically we can do this without having to act and react as much because we have that stability pathway sort of sharpened and then in such we start to go oh now i'm back to 315 for 10 and now i'm doing 315 for 12 and 315 for 15 and 315 for 20 because it's like a lot of times the reason people aren't ascending in their weights is not because they can't exert more force but it's rather their ability to exert force is predicated on their lack of ability to resist force, right? So a bench press is always a tricky one because you can hide your internal instability with your external stability of the bench, right? People move over to like a Thompson back pad and all of a sudden like, yeah, fuck yeah, man, extra 10 pounds. It's like, that wasn't you. You just had this, you had this, this perception, right? This perception of increased external stability. It's like, why don't you just do that in your own body, right? And so that's often what you should anticipate. And some people, if the adaptations, and a lot of times this is something true of like athletes that get into the sport of powerlifting, I'm going to call on powerlifting as it's kind of my forte. The best powerlifters on the planet are some of the best athletes on the planet prior to getting into powerlifting, right? Dan Green used to be a male cheerleader at the University of Michigan. Kevin Oak, sprinter at Villanova. Steffi Cohen, like a world champion in three other sports and watch her get into boxing now. Like, because they have this athleticism that when they can sharpen the peripheral spinal cerebellar, they have, they have the other two components really sharp. Where some Joe Jackass in the 405 and the Smith machine doesn't have that athleticism, we're likely going to see a slower refractory period on that biphasic response in someone who doesn't have an athletic background. Then when you have someone with an athletic background, I've seen this put 10-pound, 15-pound PRs on the bench in a single session. Because they can, they can the skill 
of adaptation in itself becomes a skill. Not even the end result, just being able to turn over and learn new skills, that in itself becomes one of your greatest resources as an athlete. So athletes, I tend to find, take to this in an almost an immediate fashion and the perception of joint stability increases in the session itself. And we see an expression of strength off the tail out of that. On athletic populations, we see this biphasic response spread out over you know, weeks or months of training. But inevitably, once those adaptations are made, albeit seemingly minor to us and them, we're going to start to see an ascension in that biphasic response. Yeah, and so, you know, and the, for the population we're speaking with, like on the podcast, is predominantly bodybuilders and, and not just your, you know, your average Joe and average house housewife or something. But, um, you know, and so that, that drop-off period could still be there for people. Um, I, I noticed some slightly and probably because, I, you know, like most of us type A, go hard on everything. And so we'll all fucking go hard on this rehab kettlebell hold. And then I'm super fatigued going into training. So there, there's probably is a uh, appropriate rate of progression. And um, for someone that's still like, hey, say you're at the professional level, you need to still have productive training. Um, and so you maybe you don't want this huge drop-offs. Uh, you know, potentially would that be something like, hey, your kettlebell holds, maybe you should do them on days you're not doing your upper body sessions. Um, or it should be on days that you're doing your body sessions. Um, and what should that frequency and duration maybe look like going into, going into these prehab or activation or whatever you want to call it um, before going into training? And does that lead you to any like increased susceptibility of risk because you fatigue these, these other uh, muscles that aren't used to having the stability? Um, and then you're going to go again and go perform, say, a squat or a bench press. And, and now you're not able to form as high or would you lack stability then because you fatigued these other areas? Right. Um, so there's a few parts to that question. I'll start with like the integrating around the exercise itself. So I think you should always be doing this prior to your exercise that demands the greatest amount of internal stability, which is likely going to be the, one of the first couple exercises, if not the first exercise in your session, like you should your capacity to internally stabilize is going to go down as a session increases. Mm -hmm. Like having a squat as a finisher is not likely the best way to drive the greatest amount of output from that squat. But right? as so a squat is for a lot of people, a skill that you practice. If you want to hop on leg press at the end of the session and just fucking go find God, by all means, you have my blessing, right? Cause it's externally stabilized. So like organizing your exercises in a way where we start least, uh, externally stabilized and then transition as the session goes on into more externally stabilized, thus diminishing the demand on that internal stability. But I think one of the things that gets missed in organizing uh, a warm up is the actual integration of the warm up into the objective outcome of the first exercise. So if the warm up has some component of mobility, some component of stability, I want to see that warm up be integrated into the actual first movement. So let's go with like the squat, for example. So maybe you come in, uh, you know, you, you try and transiently improve range of motion through all three planes of movement of the hip. So maybe it's a couch stretch, maybe it's a frog stretch, maybe it's something like a pigeon. So you kind of get internal rotation, hip extension, external rotation, abduction. So you sort of gain the requisite range of motion and not that hip mobility oftentimes is. So when we work on mobility drills, it's merely to get the body inoculated to the position we would need to then load instability into. So if we're thinking like a single leg hinge or hip airplane is something where, where it might be our furthest afield 
progression of instability. It's like most people don't necessarily need to stretch to get into those positions. If you do, then, you know, you can go down that, that whether it's self myofascial release, whether it's static stretching, I don't necessarily care. I think a lot of times contact context gets lost in the conversation around stretching prior to working out. And we go to the research and like, well, research says you're going to tear a hamstring and be weak. It's like, yeah, but the research was also like hold the fucking hamstring stretch for 90 seconds and then do a max vertical jump. It's like, if I wanted to write the equation on how to have a shitty vertical jump and to tear a hamstring, I would just get people <laughs> to do that. Right. So it's, it's principles, not evidence. So I think in this case, it's like, yeah, if you need transient inhibition to get into these positions of instability, then do that. Right. So like, let's say we go through some bounce of static stretching in our first circuit and then we go into some, maybe it's self myofascial release with like a dynamic component to it. Then we go into you know, maybe like a single leg hinge or single leg RDL. After the single leg RDL, put a bar on your back. Do an empty bar. Because it's, it's like we're changing the hardware of a circuit board. And we want to see if we're exacting the change that we're looking for. Or it's like, maybe let's make this a little bit more analog. We have Christmas lights that our parents bought 40 years ago that if a single bulb is out and they're run in series, that bulb is not going to, the whole strip's going to go down. So it's like the warm-up is changing all the bulbs. And then a lot of times people, like, they don't plug it in after. Like, well, fuck, they, they're just like shit where, look, unless your workout is 15 minutes or 50 minutes on a fucking spin bike, your warm-up should not be 15 minutes on a spin bike. Oh, we're going to get some blood moving. It's like, Oh, we look at that. I have a pulse. Okay, my blood is moving. Now what? Right? It has to be specific to the task at hand. So like what range of motion do you need to get into unstable positions to improve the joint stability of the joints we're going to be loading in the first exercise? So get your range of motion, stabilize, then integrate. Think of it like a, like a four by 100 relay where it's like the second guy isn't standing still when the baton gets passed. He's moving. And that's how we should integrate our warm up into our workout. It's like, okay, well, I go through some bouts of static stretching my first circuit, maybe some like dynamic self myofascial release. I go stand on one leg or do hip airplanes, depending on what exercise I'm doing. Then I go squat and then I go back again. So after I squat the NP bar 20 times, I go back and maybe I do static stretching. Maybe I don't. Maybe I let the static stretching fall away. Maybe I just go back and do some stability drills. And then I put, I don't know, quarters on a side. And then I do like 10 reps at 95 pounds. And then I go back and do some more stability drills. And then I go back and I go like 135. And okay, good. So the warm up has ceased. And now, now the workout has commenced. So I think that's one of the biggest things in organizing these things as far as like, how does this actually work in my program? And I don't like, because this is a novel stimulus and be novel in the sense that when people do it, it's going to be new to them, like novel and specific are kind of like, I don't know. It's specific to the rotator cuff, but it's novel as it's new to the, or the, in this case, the lateral hip, but it's novel in the sense that it's new to the person doing it. I don't think at the shoulder and hip, you necessarily have to be concerned with the accumulation of fatigue because your body is going to auto-regulate your output based off of that. Now, the spine is going to be a little bit different because of the way that the deep spine musculature is innervated. So I'm not a huge proponent of pre-exhausting the core prior to axial loading. So I wouldn't recommend anyone doing any sort of substantial core work prior to squatting because there's a different neurological pathway that innervates the deep spinal musculature that's autonomic and not voluntary. So whenever we're doing the you know, lateral hip or adductor, secondary pelvic stabilizers, rotator cuff serratus, that's voluntary muscle action or function, whereas deep spine is like um, 
is involuntary, it's autonomic. So that, that's one thing I advise against is monitoring your core work specific to when it is, um, when it is you're going to be axially loading. And it's not so much when we, when I say core, I, I don't need, I don't mean the ramifications on like the rectus, the transverse, the internal and the external oblique. I mean more so what are the underlying implications that this core work might have at the erectors, the multifidus, the rotatories, the transversospinalis group on the whole. So that's where I start to shy away from. And like the idea of core activation prior to training to me, it's just the dumbest thing in the world. Like if you squat 300 kilos and you're doing a dead bug before you fucking squat 300 kilos, you either shouldn't be squatting 300 kilos or you shouldn't be doing a fucking dead bug. So that's, so hip and hip and spine or shoulder and spine play by a little bit of a different rule book than, or sorry, hip and shoulder play by a different rule book than the spine. So I'm not a huge advocate for the pre-exhausted spinal stability prior to training. Um, but I am a fan of the idea of getting that pathway sharp through the shoulder and the hip because that pathway runs through a different track than the deep spine. And Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a way for the, the viewers, listeners to kind of conceptualize this, it's almost like a test retest system where like it might not be the exact same movements that we're choosing to train within the warm up in the exact order according to what this test retest system tells us is going wrong within this process of like stability pattern first warm up second second pattern that we choose this test retest system is in order to integrate the right patterns in which we need to do between our squat warm-ups correct right yeah so it's we're not mobilizing for the sake of the exercise we're mobilizing for the sake of the unstable position of the joint in which the exercise is based on like nothing, like an air squat to me is just silly. What are you doing? Just put a fucking, put it at the end and put a, put a bar on your back. Why are you doing air squats? Like you, you want to, like say you lack internal rotation of the hip, right? A 90-90 position looks nothing like a squat. Although a 90-90 can evoke a good amount of passive internal rotation of the hip, which then when you stand up and go into an airplane and create rotation on a fixed femur, you can then access greater ranges into that 90-90 or that into that, uh, that internal rotated uh, femoral position, which will then carry into the squat as you load it. So it's like, that's the prerequisite system of mobility and stability and strength is like, you're just trying to gain range of motion to better improve your position in which you train that joint's functional instability at, and then integrate that into the actual exercise itself. So a lot of people get very exercise focused and they're like, well, I got to mobilize my squat. So I'm going to squat. It's like, yeah, look again, like, that's fine. That's a low resolution model. And like at the end of the day, if you don't want to do any of this, like that's, that's totally cool. But to me in the way, like the arthrokinematics or the joint mechanics transpose over into the biomechanics, that's how it be, you, that's the, that's a frame shift that people kind of sometimes struggle with that their mobility work has to be tailored to the position or the desired joint position to train functional instability rather than the actual exercise that comes a few steps down the line. No, that makes that makes complete sense and it's usually like what do you need in the exercise that you're going into like your squat you need external internal rotation so that can help kind of guide what mobility pattern you should start with and then from there move into these functional movements um, that test that stability and challenge it cause adaptations then you can move to your squat from there i think that 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 builds an approach of someone um, now this is you know these these guys that are looking into doing something like this um, of course, well, hey, you go through Prescript, right? <laughs> you go find Jordan. Um, but I, you, you did bring up one thing that I wanted to, to pick out is 
um, the utility of like myofascial release, like I, people ask me all the time, like foam rolling, like, should I even be doing this in integrating my warm-up? Is there more of a specific application for it? And maybe areas that you don't do it on. Um, it's like, Hey, I go, my hamstrings feel tight. Let me go roll them out. Oh, great. They're loose now. Now I'll go train. It's like, well, why are they, why were they tight to begin with? Like, should we be foam rolling to make them loose? And um, so I want to just like, pull that out and see what you had to say on, on as far as Im implementing foam rolling. Right. Um, yeah. I, so I take a different stance than like most academics, like most academics will be like, ah, foam rolling stupid, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I know you're stupid. How about that? You're stupid and you're weak. Um, because it's just, again, you, people don't take the time to map the central nervous system. So we have like these different, so we're talking about proprioception is sort of like the, the synonymous term with stability, right? So, Proprioception gets relayed by these things called your muscle spindles. Muscle spindles, they kind of like wrap around intrafusal muscle fibers. And then as we, as those muscles stretch, by we go into more structurally unstable positions, it elicits this, this uh, feedback loop, which causes inter and extrafusal muscle fibers to start to contract to calibrate for that joint position. So proprioception muscle spindle, that's one nerve ending that comprises the spinocerebellar tract, which we talked about earlier. But in that spinocerebellar tract, where yes, proprioception and muscle spindles get our muscle spindles get relayed through the spinocerebellar tract the quickest, which is probably trying to tell us something that stability and your body's ability to map its internal environment is pretty damn important. Um, but there's also things like uh, Pisidian corpuscles, the Ruffini endings, and Merkel's disc, and Meisner's corpuscles, and all of these other things can better help us understand why it is that these things work. Why is it that foam rollers are so popular? Why is it that Theraguns are so popular? Well, Meisner's disc, Ruffini endings, Merkel's disc, uh, uh, Pacinian corpuscles, all these other nerve endings that fall in a similar category, like a, like a muscle spindle or Golgi tendon organ, all of these are that comprise that spinal cerebellar pathway, each one of these is kind of responsible for, a for, for being a lock to a different key, right? So like the key of using vibration, right? Vibration triggers this nerve ending and then it causes an inhibitory reflex as a consequence of that. Now it doesn't move as fast as proprioception does, but it's part of the spinocerebellar picture on the whole, right? So we can, we can begin to justify why it is that Theraguns and hypervolts and your fucking DeWalt with a wine cork on it, why are these working, right? Like, why is it that every NFL team has a fucking whole lineup of these things just ready to go? It's not that they're not working, right? Why is it that people, you know, like, like I mentioned Donnie earlier, like, why is it, how is it that Donnie Thompson is selling people hunks of fucking steel? Why is that a thing, right? And it's like, well, it's just deep pressure stimulus. It's different than vibration, right? Some people go like skin straps. That's another one. How is it that voodoo floss bands work? Because you have fucking joint receptors in your skin, like in layers of your dermis that trigger that input in helping to create this peripheral mapping system within your body. So all of this, all it just tells me is this is information, right? This is information that we don't have a complete map of our body. So yeah, fuck, deep pressure, foam roll, vibration. You want to put your fucking exhaust or whatever the fuck Donnie's selling people on your legs? Yeah, go ahead, do it but it's just telling you that there's an incomplete picture. And maybe that incomplete picture exists outside of the realm of the spinocerebellar tract, right? And we see this with people who are just gym rats who don't have an athletic background. It's like, they don't know how to integrate acuity and rhythm into their training. They couldn't catch a fucking, they can't catch a beach ball. Like there's no coordination because they just work through the sagittal plane on these fixed tracks with the knee wraps and their, 
headphones and their fucking elbow sleeves and all this shit, right? So that's why, like, it's not really fair to look at things and demonize things like foam rollers and all that. I think in the case of tightness, tightness leads or is stemmed from your body uh, unwantingness or unwillingness or uncertainty to advance into positions of further structural instability because it doesn't know how functionally we're going to respond. Hamstring, classic example, right? Hamstring tightness is basically your body saying, hey, we don't want your pelvis to move anywhere that resides outside of its stack position on the rib cage, and we don't want your femurs to move anywhere that's not underneath the pelvis directly. Why? Because that keeps us in a structurally stable position because we're not certain that when we reach the outer borders of our structural instability that our function is really there to take the role, right? So when we look at the role of the pel or the, the position of the pelvis, being directly stabilized primarily through the core and secondarily through the adductor group. It's like the hamstrings just stop you from moving into positions where we're going to test the functional capacity of the adductors and or core. So it's like if you stabilize your pelvis and teach it to be stable in these structurally unstable positions, your body will allow you to move in and out of these positions until which point we're just going to govern that range of motion by tightening the shit out of your hamstrings. So we can't move our pelvis into this position, which will put, an inherent demand on some of the muscles that are meant to primarily functionally stabilize the pelvis, if that makes sense. It does. So <clears throat> could you say if someone does have recurrent, the, the perception of tightness in these muscles is that should be red flags that you are lacking stability in these other uh, yeah. you know, muscle groups and structures that need to be addressed. Yeah. Without a doubt, man, like yeah. in the hip, basically like, <laughs> the shoulder hip and spine have different rule books you know, the required range of motion at the shoulder or the desired range of motion at the shoulder to train functional instability is flexion and external rotation of the glenohumeral joint in a neutral rib cage and the desired range of motion at the hip is extension and internal rotation with a neutral pelvis if you can do that if you have mobility into those ranges of motion you then have the you have the range of motion necessary to start to elicit instability where needed, right? So like extension, internal rotation, that's going to cause your psoas to start to primarily stabilize your lumbar spine. That's going to cause your TFL and your glute med to start to laterally stabilize the hip, flexion, external rotation. That's going to be a pretty good position for your teres minor and your infraspinatus and also a really good position to start to train your serratus anterior, right? So, you know, these, the, these joints are, are kind of, you know, you have to be able to get them in the right positions for these kind of, I don't want to say second order, but for these muscles to be able to function properly. Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because everyone, that's always something that everyone can relate to. Uh, you know, they speak pretty high level on, you know, a lot of these different functions, but uh, for someone to just like simply relate that can't, doesn't understand at that high level, um, this like a tightness is like, could be like a red flag, you know? Um, but going from like the myofascial release and tightness, people use lots of different types of tools, right. To address this as well, as far as like chiropractor work, massage work, um, all these different other systems, uh, compression therapy. I mean, you name it to like for recovery or like what, what is someone, what is the, the things that we should be putting weight into for, uh, for a rehab uh, individual that, that wants something like out, like a massage, like does massage have any, you know, um, someone just poking on you, uh, the cupping, um, all, all this stuff, like where, where was, where's the value? Where's not the value? Yeah, it depends, right? Like it depends on if they're doing, like they're turning over the big rocks first. 
right? Like a lot of people, a lot of people just fucking lazy, right? Like a lot of people, that's it. Like people just fucking lazy. They're lazy and they don't actually want to get strong. So it's like, yeah, go ahead, get your massage and go to your Cairo once a week and just keep being lazy. But it's like re- the, the real answer is going to be something. Because look, I've been in practice for six years. My job is to have an effect on other people's nervous systems. I know that. Now, when it comes to chiropractors, there's, I don't know if there's many chiropractors that could have a pot- or have the potential to have an effect on other people's nervous systems as much as me. I can bring a pretty heavy hand into an office if I, if I need to, but as heavy handed as I can be, and not to say heavy handedness is the only way to affect a nervous system. But if you're trying to elicit some sort of response on a guy's upper trap, that's used to having 900 pounds on it. It's like, you better be able to bring the fucking house. Right. But as much as a potential as I have in manipulating the perception of someone else's nervous system, no matter who the person is, they always have a greater potential to do that than me. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just need to get them in a position for them to be able to make that change internally. Because everything, so rehab exists on a spectrum, right? When it comes to range of motion, it's like passive, active, assisted, active, and active resistance. So uh, chiropractic, physical therapy, massage, as far from an efficacy, an efficacy standpoint in the, in the way that these practices or these, um, these subdisciplines of manual therapy are commonly practiced, they exist solely, almost solely in the passive range of motion, right? Maybe active assisted. But it's like the big rocks are active and active resistant, right? And this is where like, I think a lot, and I'm a chiropractor that practices, I have, I see 12 people a year. They're the same 12 people and I see them for weeks on end and I'm on, they're on the table for like five minutes and then they're in the gym for, I don't know, 12 hours a week. Right? So it's like, how is it that a chiropractor or a physical therapist can take the ideas behind corrective exercise and turn it into just exercising correctly? Right. Like you should be able to look at a program and be like, okay, we have big holes in where we're attempting to expose the function of the shoulder, hips, and spine. But I don't want you to put in the red TheraBand external rotation exercise. I want you to be doing, um, you know, pull ups with a pronated grip. And I want you to integrate uh, pullovers with a neutral grip with supported D handles at shoulder width. Like that's, that's where you start to bridge the gap. And frankly, like, look, and, and it, for some people, chiropractic physical therapy massage at least it enters into the spectrum of stimulus and so i worked as a corporate chiropractor at apple uh when i first graduated these people don't lift weights so i was simultaneously working at boss barbell club with dan and the other powerlifters and then on the flip side of the spectrum there was just software engineers that were just coding your next iphone but you would get some pretty amazing results in cracking someone's back that sat there forever because that's literally the only motion they're going to get into their spine at all. So it's like, it's not to say that, you know, obviously I don't think my profession is useless by any stretch of the imagination, but if you try, if you're someone who's pushing performance, whoever is practicing better have, they better be able to bridge that gap from passive, even into active assisted, pass active assisted into active and active resistant, right? Like the rehab for you guys, your rehab could involve 225 front squats if you had like a, a low back injury, right? Like, Hey, let's minimize shear force. Let's, you know, let's elevate your heels. Let's keep your rib cage stacked. And for you a 225 front squat's going to be nothing, right? Where I'm not going to have you do, we're going to do Peterson step-ups and terminal knee extensions with a band around your knees. Are you fucking joking me? A 40 inch quad. What the fuck is that going to do? 
right? So understanding, like, I think for people listening to this, it's like if your clinician isn't having the conversation around how to scale from corrective exercise to exercising correctly, just don't go. I mean, I don't give a fuck. Like, if it feels good, whatever you want to waste your money, that's your prerogative. But like, as far as efficacy goes, like, you just have to, you have to understand that the corrections being made at the level of the nervous system and the limitations of passive range of motion and external uh, stimulus to affect like an internal stimulus is always greater than an external stimulus. You don't put a tens unit on your arms pre-Olympia to grow your arms because you know, that's just an external means in which causing a, a muscle contraction and sarcoplasmic depolarization, all that bullshit. Right. But the end result is the same. That, yeah, people miss that when they go into manual therapy. It's like, no, no, the, the internal stimulus is always going to be stronger and better adapted than the external. So you need to put yourself in a position to actually load the internal stimulus to make the adaptation. Yeah, I think it's just like a, an education in, ignorance area. And I, I've been there too. It's like you go to massage therapy or and you're like, well, this whatever they're doing, however they're moving their hands across these tissues, that's what it needs to be done to make that healing process happen and praise the Lord. Right. Um, and usually anything where someone is trying to put a stimulus onto you is like you said, it's never going to be as effective as giving that stimulus yourself. And the most like profound and greatest rehab that I've done. And when I had all these issues that occurred was getting me off a table because it's great to on an off day, go lay somewhere and have someone just poke on you. And then you're like, Hey, I feel pretty good afterwards. But then I went to a guy that actually like, Hey, we're going to get off this table. And we're almost, it's almost like turning into a training session. I'm like this fucking sucks. Like, you know, this is like, now it's work. And, but that work was the fastest thing that could get me back and going again. So, you know, I think you had, like you said, if you have someone, it's, it's really an, a totally integrated approach. Like they can't just have like chiropractic work. They, they need a multi-system approach and understand exercise to get you off a table and get you back into moving into those positions you want to move in. And I think that's when you're going to see uh, wh whether, you know, you're, you're making profound change. And, you know, if you have someone that's, that's around you, that's, you know, um, good application of what they do. So like what, if, if someone's like, okay, I, I'm trying to find someone in my area that has this knowledge set to apply. It's like, where do I even start? Because I get this question a lot too. Like, who should I go to, John? And then I'm like looking up online different credentials, and I, you know, it's that's that's a tough question. Um, what what do you refer people to? Like, hey, well, these are the X Y Z things that this person should have. Um, if you need someone to to help assess your your movement dysfunction, your injuries, or or whatever's going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky now that I've been able to establish like a pretty broad network of coaches that have come through like our program. So I usually start internally with, uh, with prescript coaches. And then uh, from there, it's definitely tough, right? Um, hey, Jordan, so real quick. So on prescript, if they go on, uh, do they, you have a list of all your coaches on there? That's, yeah, the new iteration of the website should be up in the next week or so. And our, um, our directory is going to be on there. Okay, perfect. But the hard part, the hard part with like moving outside of that, uh, and I, I put the onus a lot and increasingly more so on the lifter itself. Like I know the majority of lifters that come to me with this stuff, uh, they know more about their iPhones and the Instagram algorithm than they do their own bodies. And it's like, that's a choice you made, man. Like the resources are out there. So you, for me, I, I lose, I would say I lose patience, but I don't like excuses. So it's like, 
if you're coming to me and asking me if like this guy's good and you don't know your ear hole from your asshole and this is going to be something that you're supposedly passionate about and or it's a way that you secure your own income maybe start taking this fucking seriously um and so i think it's on i especially as we start to deal with people look if you're if you're a mother of five and you work in a like a, a job and you got bills and shit yeah fuck you you don't have time to but if you're just some schmuck like us that work on the internet and like coach people it's like dude read a fucking book man like so i think a lot of people who are stifled and potentially disgruntled with the process of finding a good clinician and they just sit there and they throw their hands in the air like rah, 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 rah. it's like it's lazy you better right? it's 100 fucking lazy and it's the same guy that leans for the theragun it's the same guy that doesn't listen to what he's told anyway so it's it's tough like you know obviously you don't want to leave anyone high and dry but like you, you lead a fucking horse to water man but at the end of the day it's like I, I'm definitely more now, like just the, how available good information is, I think. And discernment is a difficult quality to, to have, especially in something you don't know, but like learn it. If this is how you make your money, like how many people who are like online coaches and maybe they got a few coaches underneath them and they're making good money. Like, oh man, like, there's no good Kairos up there. It's like, just fix your own, like, dude, a, a, a library card costs like a fucking dollar fifty. Like, just go figure it out yourself because you have internet, read. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's just lazy. And I, and again, it's a, that's a pretty, like, I've been around this for a while and I get the question posed to me a lot. And again, I'm lucky in the sense that I have like a, a broad network sort of now like across, I don't know, 49, 52 countries or something like that. Um, so I can have a database in which I can draw from. But a lot of times, even if I'm sending someone my way, I don't want to send my coaches some pain in the ass, lazy guys. So I'm like, look, what's what's an Electronon process? What? Eh, maybe you should just go to, to the local chiropractor down the street. So I really, I just, I think it, the onus is on the individual at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I agree. And I understand, like, I feel for people, like, if you are, you know, time spent, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and hey, I don't have time to sit and learn, you know, the, an hour long lecture every single day and eventually address this issue. But it, that's not asking all that. There's little aspects that you, you can do to learn along the way. There's, there's plenty of courses to slowly pick things up over time. And then maybe you have someone out there that, hey, you listen to Dr. Jordan Shallow and he's giving you some tidbits and you, you can start investing in those individuals that are putting out, you know, the information. It's all, man, people spend more time researching the fucking diners they go to in towns they've never been in <laughs> than going, like, what are you doing? It's like, ah, this Denny's got like a four and a half star review. I don't know. Want to get a grand slam? It's like, yeah, no, come on now. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll watch an, like an hour of TV like every single day, right? Pretty much. That's my like wind down time. We chill on the couch, watch it. It's like, if I really had some other issue, like I would pull that time out and, and put it into what I needed to. Um, but I completely agree. Like nowadays you can find it, figure out how to do anything. Like I'm not like, I just installed, um, overhead lighting in my garage. Like I fucking went in the attic. I hardwired the wiring. Like I'm not an electrician. I was at risk of death, you know, but you can do these things, you know, and just like, you can learn your body and learn some like basic prehab and how to assess yourself. Like that is a doable thing because so much information is there. But like you said, like, discerning through the information can be kind of an issue because there's so much out there that are present, but that's when you do look for someone that has credentialized to present that education uh, material. Um, 
So what are like your, your, you know, like final thoughts, Jordan, on mistakes that you uh, made within addressing injury profiles, assessing strategies, managing that for a physique athlete across like the, the, the long term? So you're asking kind of what is, what are the common mistakes we see in physique athletes as far as like sustainability in their program? Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of alluded to it earlier, man. I think it's like the comp, the initial compromise, right? That, oh, this hurts. So I'm going to do this on a machine. Or I, this hurts, it hurts when I do this, so I'm going to move my grip out a little wider. And like, I'm going to, they just put themselves in such a, like a smaller and smaller box until all of a sudden they have, you know, potentially irreparable damage. So I think, you know, heeding to those warning signs and using those as an opportunity to begin to learn the underlying issue of the day. Because over time, like, I don't know, man, I went to chiropractic college with, I graduated with, 45 other kids in my class the stuff I talk about is not from chiropractic college like I had half of my graduating class take at some point one of my courses so it's like I got I, I tore my quad on a triple of 300 kilos I tore my pack benching before the pro raw 200 kilos I uh, played 20 years up to like the semi-pro level of hockey I got I was riding my bike to the gym once and this chicken couldn't see over the steering wheel of her dad's suburban T-boned me on my 10 speed. So I like totally Mel Gibson, my left shoulder. And each one of those was like a really, and I learned more in each one of those experiences because I was like, look, this is a problem. I need to, I'm going to prioritize this above all else. So I was in Cairo school and I got my left shoulder separated. And I now, by the time I was, you know, six months post post-injury, no surgery, I could have taught a graduate school level lecture on shoulder separation, right? And I didn't learn that from Dr. Feinberg. I learned that from, you know, Suhan Liu, the chick who couldn't see over the fucking wheel of her dad's <laughs> suburban as she sailed through the stop sign, right? So it's just, I think people don't see the opportunity in some of these things. Like I tore my pack and two years after tearing my pack, I remember it was in early August, I got a call from a guy who was the next day about to play Roger Federer in the U.S. Open, and he had torn his pet. And he was like, he reached out through his network and was like, I need someone who knows this, and I need to know like what I'm like, do I play Roger Federer tomorrow or not? So I had a call with this Australian tennis player. I basically had to walk him through because, yeah, I had like, I, whatever, I went to school and all that shit, but he was not calling me because I went to school for fucking nine years. He was calling me because I tore my pet. Because I was willing to lay out for it and actually do the damn thing just as he was. Right. So like, you know, tennis, we can look at tennis and be like, oh, it's kind of well, whatever. But tennis is a pretty badass sport. So like, I think that's the biggest thing when, with people in their own development is like, yeah, uh, my elbow hurts when I do triceps up here, but it doesn't hurt when I do cable extensions. It's not I'm just going to do cable rope extensions at zero degrees of abduction in my arms at my side. Why can't I? Why does it not hurt? Why does my elbow extension here hurt over my head, but not here? It's like, do you lose that as an opportunity? It's like, oh scapular position, scapular humor rhythm, rib cage expansion, external rotation, overhead stability, serratus, teres minor, and then you can start to piece these together and it'll happen again. It'll happen in a different, oh, now it hurts doing overhead press. Oh, okay, and then like, well, how do I fix this? Oh, my knees hurt. I love that one. I love a good knee pain story. My knees hurt when I squat. Don't just not fuck in the number of bodybuilders that are like, ah, I stopped squatting because my knees hurt. Like, all right. And then it's like they just do leg extensions now forever. 
until they can't, and then they just go into men's physique and then they quit. It's like, what are your like? What do you use that as an opportunity? It's like, why am I having patellofemoral pain? Down the rabbit hole you go. So I think that's like more of like a meta answer as far as like the biggest mistake people make is they don't see the opportunity to learn. Oh, Instagram comes out with a new algorithm. All right, I'm gonna post reels now because Zuck wants everyone to post reels. You'll learn that shit. But like, oh, my knee hurts. Yeah, fuck aquatic stretches. Hey, let's hop on the slip machine. Like, oh, for fuck's sakes. And it's just, I mean, it's how much, like, do you love the outcome of training? Do you love the process of training to do it? And if not, fine, whatever. Post your reels and do your quad extensions. I don't give a fuck, right? But I think at a certain day, like, at a certain point, there are people who, do they want to, they want to pretend like they're about it. They like the lifestyle. They like the association of, you know, being in this community. But then you got to pay the price, man. Like, and the price isn't necessarily paid with the pain. It's like, what do you do with the experience or the opportunity that that experience affords you? Are you someone to just go on to the quad extension with squatter? Or are you someone to actually like, no, I enjoy squatting. I know it to be a beneficial part of this process. I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, it's, it's always the process that can lead to the greatest self-development and value, I think, throughout anything that we, that we do. And it's we can get focused, hyper-focused on the outcome. Like, I want to squat X number. But a lot of that value that you could then have for yourself or share with others is getting through the process of getting up to that squat of X value. And uh, that's even, yeah, like you said, people that come to me, like, um, do they care that I went and got my, you know, my RD and, and master's in nutrition? Like most of the stuff that I use now, I didn't learn going to dietitian school. It's actually going through the process of like getting up to Olympia level. And that's why people come. So this is when you like see that just like what I made J3 University for. It's like bridging the gap of like, yes, we have science and literature and textbooks and all that has value. But end of the day, you like you have to get in the trenches with this stuff, and that's when you're going to get the greatest knowledge set and an application for yourself, or if you're helping others uh, to apply it. So I think that's that's a that's a great takeaway. And then for other people that are you know experiencing these issues, stop just working around things till you have nothing to left to utilize. You know, ask ask why. And, and that's part of the scientific mind as well. Like if, if you're nerding out on, on all this stuff, it's like, ask why, why does this happen? And that takes you down the route of trying to solve something. So uh, Luke, did you have anything else for Jordan? Any other questions? I think one just thing real quick, I know we're running out of time to wrap things up is I know a lot of, and you've kind of touched on this already, but a lot of bodybuilders for the sake of like continuing output purposes will lean on these variations that externalize stability across the entire session. I think that's one of the biggest missed things that we can do is the integration of these patterns into our program in like a scaled fashion where we can still continue to output, but we're, we're, we're working things in, in order to develop the capacity to eventually bring back the pattern that we were getting pain into in the first place. Do you believe that that's one of the biggest places where bodybuilders make mistakes outside of just that initial, like, you know, compensation of like, okay, this hurts. So I'm going to go to this, or I'm going to adjust the pattern is not working back into that through proper program design. And do you still think that that's like the right logic in prioritizing output by doing what we can, but then like on the back end, possibly integrating these patterns that are going to allow us to move back towards that initial uh, pattern in the first place. Right, yeah. So there's direct and indirect benefits to each exercise, right? Like a squat is 
not necessarily for most people, given the skill level in which I see squats often perform, the best exercise to grow quads and or glutes, right? It's not. Now, there are people who have a high, uh, a high aptitude and a high skill, uh, um, like a high skill in the movement, and they can and they can do it effectively, and they can reap a similar benefit to like say something like a leg press. But if you're someone who doesn't have that skill, I think the pursuit of acquiring that skill and practicing that skill in your training, whether prior, I would assume prior to um, prior to training your output, that'll lead you down the route of being just essentially asking better questions, right? So if you are trying to acquire the skill of a squat, and this is a skill that you are to practice, not an exercise that you are going to train for output, I think in attempting to fix and express the function that is required of you to squat proficiently and maybe one day efficiently enough that you can actually sub it out for something like a squat in a particular block of your programming, that vein of thought will lead you down the rabbit hole of exposing the function in which you're attempting to express. And then ultimately will superimpose over not only obviously the skill you're trying to acquire in the squat itself, but that internal stability, that express, that exposure of that function as it's rectified will begin to carry over onto more externally stabilized machines because there's nothing to say you can't use internal stability in conjunction with external stability to really drive output. Like people lie on a prone hamstring curl like a big cat over a tree. It's like, does your body work at all? Are you just paralyzed from the waist up and just your legs work? Like, why are you sitting there like the laziest piece of shit? Like, can you use a core? Like one, just use a single core. Like one core muscle to stabilize your pelvis rather than just having this fucking thing cranking all over the place. Right. So I think absolutely, you know, the indirect benefits of going from exercises that maybe expose function, whether that's a barbell overhead press, pull-ups, dips, uh, squats, and pulling on the thread and exposing the underlying function in which you're trying to express, that'll lead you down the hole of improving range of motion where necessary to get into unstable joint positions, which will then allow you to improve that exposure of function, integrate that into an expression of function. And then indirectly that improving of that ex uh, function exposure is going to superimpose and increase the output you have on things that are more externally stabilized. Right. But it's like, look, you still need to like execute at a high level, right? The machine's not going to do that for you. And I think, and it's what, it's the same with squatting. It's like, just because you can stand on one leg does not mean the fucking squat fairy is coming to put a good technique under your pillow, right? I know plenty of acro yogi top knot, no shoe wearing, you know, 165 pound kids that can stand on one leg, put a bar on their back, they fold like a fucking lawn chair. Right. So it doesn't it doesn't license you the ability. It doesn't owe you anything, but it's the tools you need to integrate that into the into that expression of function. I think indirectly that exposure of function, improving that peripheral joint stability of the shoulder, the hip and the spine will then allow you if you choose to use it to actually drive more output on your on your um, externally stabilized exercise. No, thank, thanks for that, Jordan. I think laying out that program design is what you know, Luke and I have both looked into and trying to you know, start with instability movements and then move into more stable movements. And that just makes sense from a programming standpoint. But like you, we said in the very beginning, you have guys that like, well, I'm going to put my, my squat set at the very end because that's the hardest lift. And, but when you're already in your early tax, that's 
probably not the way to be programming um, from an output standpoint, but not just from outpoint and moving, uh, you know, loads, but even from a bodybuilding standpoint of trying to get the most out of, of a muscle for hypertrophy purposes. Yeah, I like that people's elbow as a finisher probably do more for your bodybuilding career than doing the squat as a finisher. <laughs> well, Jordan, uh, if, if people want to find you, where, where can we find you get more information? I can't imagine they would, but if they do, they don't uh, like you now. You talked a bunch of shit. I'll, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I love it. I'll give them my fucking home address. Stop by anytime. Uh, now Instagram, the, the underscore muscle underscore doc prescript is where we run all the education courses out of right now. Next semester starts late March, early April, uh, that's www.pre-script.com. So that's, that's where you'll find me most days is either on that, on the Prescript site or on my own personal Instagram. Awesome. Well, Jordan, great conversation and, and truly appreciate having you on. I know your, your schedule is very busy. You're a wanted man. So <laughs> appreciate you sharing some time with us. Yeah, local police departments. <laughs> That's it. Well, again, this is uh, J3 University. Until next time, we will talk to you then.